This is Canada Reads American Style, featuring two friends who love Canada Reads and Canadian literature. Welcome our host Rebecca from Michigan and Tara from Ontario. Hi everyone, it's Rebecca, and today Tara and I are deeply honored to speak with our guest, author Omar Alakad. As you all know, he is the 2021 winner of the Scotiabank Giller Prize, the most prestigious literary award in Canada, for his second novel, What Strange Paradise. The novel is also a contender in this year's Canada Reads competition and is being defended by Tarek Haddad. Omar was born in Egypt, grew up in Qatar, moved to Canada as a teenager, and now lives in the United States. We are so excited to have you with us. Omar, welcome to our podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. So, Omar, to start our discussion, for anyone who hasn't read the book yet, can you please tell us a little bit about What Strange Paradise? Sure, yeah. Um, what Strange Paradise is a repurposed fable of sorts. It's the story of Peter Pan reinterpreted as um, as the story of a contemporary child refugee. It opens on the scene of a migrant shipwreck on an unnamed uh, western uh, island somewhere off the coast of Europe. And there's one survivor, a nine-year-old boy named Amir. And from that point on, the chapters alternate between everything that led up to the moment of the shipwreck and everything that happens after the shipwreck. So you go back and forth with the before and the after chapters. And it's largely a story about home. Uh, about what home means and what it means when when that stable definition is taken away from you. It's a very short book. It's a very quiet book. And it's very different in tone from my first novel, American War. So it's sort of uh, a very different direction from where I was going with that, with that first book. I love your description of it as a quiet book. Very nice. Okay, so at the beginning... Prior to even the book starting, at the beginning, there's two quotes. One is from a short story, An Occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge by Ambrose Bierce. And the second is from J.M. Barry's Peter Pan. Can you tell us um, how you came to select those two opening quotes? Sure, yeah. The, the book steals from a lot of places. It steals from the Odyssey. It steals from Paradise Lost. Uh, it seals from the Book of Nicodemus, which is part of the Apocrypha, the, the books that didn't quite make the Bible. But the two central places it steals from are the two works that are quoted in the epigraphs page. So it's a very different novel, depending on how familiar the reader is with, with Peter Pan and the life of J.M. Barry, the guy who wrote Peter Pan. And um, structurally, if you're familiar with an occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge, which is a fairly famous American uh, short story, you sort of know what kind of trick I'm trying to play on the reader in terms of the structure of the novel. Uh, that said, it's not, you know, I talk about it as a repurposing of Peter Pan. There's nowhere in the book where that sort of comes screaming off of the page. It's very much beneath the surface. It's very much hidden in the book. So that's why I say that it's it's, a very different book depending on how familiar you are with those with those two works because I've gotten I've gotten lots of letters from readers with very very different interpretations of what's going on in this novel and so what I intended is closely related to what happens in those two stories 
what I intended doesn't really matter anymore. Um, I'm guilty of being one of those readers who I read the quotes, of course, and then I read the book and I kind of forget about the quotes. And I read the book pre prior to Rebecca and she read it. And then I, she went back to the quotes, I believe, didn't you, Rebecca? Yeah. And she sent me a text going, oh my God, in which she then <laughs> told me about the uh, Ambrose Beer story. And the two of us were just, our minds were blown, like the book took on a whole new dimension to us. I mean, it's, it's for lack of a better word, it's a deeply manipulative book in the sense that it it spends a lot of time laying certain rugs beneath the reader's feet before pulling them out. I was having a conversation with Margaret Atwood, of all people, who, for reasons that completely escaped me, had decided to read the book. Um, there's no good reason that Margaret Atwood should have any idea who the hell I am, let alone read my work. And of course, the first thing she said was, you know, I see what you were trying to do there with the, with the Ambrose Beer story. Don't think that it slipped by me. <laughs> and I thought, no, it slipped by my editors. If it's not going to slip by you, you've read everything in existence. So yeah, it's it's one of those things that when you're when you're spending years putting a story together, you get to hide these things in there, and and half the time it's just for you. It's just for you, the writer. But I, I do like the idea of of a work that's going to outlive me, having as many different lives as possible, and and with this one in particular the number of different interpretations of what's going on in this book have been, have certainly exceeded what I expected. I used to find that very sort of confusing and frustrating. And now I find it quite comforting now. So I like the idea that people have different interpretations of what's going on in the book. Can I just jump in and say that Tara and I, we talked about it today that we're going to go back and read the book again and do a really deep dive and probably do a podcast on it because the, it's exactly as you said, you could read it on you can read it on so many different levels, but it's d diving in deeper and finding all those gems. It's what's going to be a lot of fun for us because again, I just thought, I just thought it was absolutely brilliant the way you did it. And I love that different interpretations are okay. <laughs> I like that. Thank you. I appreciate it. I, I was thinking about it the other day of the difference, you know, the diff the main difference in my mind between the two novels I've written is I think that, American War doesn't survive a surface reading, you know, a surface level reading, because this isn't how a second civil war would happen. And, you know, that sort of criticism. And it doesn't survive a very deep reading because you start to see the places where I've cheated and where it doesn't quite work. But it survives a sort of middle ground reading. <laughs> and What Strange Paradise is the exact opposite. I think it survives a surface level reading because there's a story and, you know, there's a sort of narrative. And it survives a very deep reading where you start to pick apart the things that I've hidden in it, it doesn't survive anything in the middle. It doesn't survive a middle of the road reading. I think that's the main difference between the two books. As for Amir, your main characters, you have Amir, who is a young boy, uh, eight, nine years old, I believe, and mm -hmm. Vanna, who is 15. Why did you choose for Amir to be a child? I don't know if I'm any good at writing children characters. I think a lot of my critics will tell you that I'm absolutely not. But I, I, I find myself returning to childhood quite a bit. I think there's a couple of reasons for that. Some of them are specific to this particular story and, and some of them are not. More generally, you know, since I was about five years old, when I first realized that by doing this work, by sitting down and writing a story or telling a story in any way, 
you're able to reach into somebody's head and move the wires around. Ever since I realized that that was a possibility, fiction has been my place of retreat. It's, 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 it's the place I retreat to. You know, I, I've, I've moved around a lot in my life. I, um, uh, I was born in Egypt, but I moved when I was five. I grew up in Qatar. I'm a citizen of Canada. Now I'm a citizen of the U.S. I don't really have a good answer to the question of where home is. And for people like me, fiction is a good home because you get to invent the contours of your, your made-up world and you get to move them so that they fit whatever your actual experience is. And so I think I return to childhood quite a bit because I'm, I'm trying to get to that safety before I had this very keen sense of placelessness that I now have. So that's just a general thing. In terms of you know, what I write about, the subject matter that I gravitate towards, for better or worse, I'm not saying this is a good thing, but I tend to write about systemic injustice of one kind or another. And a lot of what's systemically wrong in our world is dependent on fraudulence. It's dependent on these widely accepted lies. And I think a lot of times I tend to collide that with what I view as the sort of inherent honesty of childhood. I think of childhood as the time of our only really honest interaction with the world. And so I'm constantly colliding those two things, not just in my two published novels, but in a lot of my short stories. None of that is to say that I do this well or that I know how to write children or anything like that. It's just a kind of magnetic place for me, and particularly with a story like this where a lot of the interaction between Vanna and Amir is based on interactions I had as a child when I was living in Qatar, which is a place where 90% of the people are from somewhere else. And so there's no expectation that you speak the same language as the kid you meet in the playground or something like that. You naturally resort to like hand signs and telling someone you're five years old by holding up five fingers and you know that sort of thing. So a lot of those little snippets come from my own childhood. So there's, there's a number of specific reasons for the story and there's a number of general reasons just related to why I write in the first place. Well, I want to ask, you spoke about home and how home is a tough designation uh, with your background. And I wanted to ask a little bit about how you developed the characters in the boat and what home could possibly mean to the people in the boat. Yeah, so half the chapter's pretty much take place on this boat that's crossing the Mediterranean. And, and a lot of the characters, um, there's about a half dozen central characters on the boat. I don't, I don't steal whole people, uh, but I do steal snippets of people. So there's a lot of snippets of my own family members, the people I grew up around, the conversations that I remember hearing as a child, and then later on, you know, participating in when I was older. A lot of that finds its way onto the boat. I think of a lot of the story as a sort of collision of two fantasies. The fantasy pointed from the West towards the part of the world I grew up in, which basically says all these people are barbarians at the gate and we need to stop them by any means necessary. And then the fantasy headed in the other direction, which says, if I can just make it to the West, everything will be okay. Um, and those fantasies are so powerful that reality becomes subservient to them both. What's actually happening is not as important as what these people believe 
is happening. Um, and so there's a lot of delusion on that boat, as there was a lot of delusion in these conversations that I remember hearing, a lot of delusions about what to expect if you ever make it to, you know, in particular, the United States, because that's, that's the central beacon when you live, when you live where I lived, is this idea of making it to America. Uh, and you'll be left alone, and you'll prosper, and everything will be better, and nothing will be worse. That delusion is an incredibly powerful thing, and and it it shapes these people to a to an unhealthy degree, as it shaped me to an unhealthy degree when I was growing up in Qatar, which had no cultural industries, no local cultural industries. So I grew up on Western culture, and I thought as a result that I understood the West. And then I moved here and realized that I don't in the slightest. Every morning I wake up and realize that I don't. So they're living at the collision point of these two fantasies, and they're trying to make a decent, humane life. And they're going to some pretty inhuman extremes to to get there. I think that's a lot of what this book is about. Thank you for that. Um, And my next question, without giving away the ending, which is a jolt to the reader, if they're aware uh, of things, I guess, overall, uh, was it meant to be kind of a wake-up call for complacency? I, when, I wrote, when I wrote American War, obviously I was younger, and, and I had this notion that the things it would do were sort of unbounded by reality, you know? Western nations are going to stop bombing brown people after they read this book and all of this stuff that in reality, none of it happened, obviously. Not, it, was, it was an incredibly naive way to think about not just literature, but, but any art or any culture in general as having an obligation to do this. I think the older I get, the less of an expectation I have of the book beyond what's inherent in the writing of a book. You know, just just before I got on this call, I saw a tweet from somebody who was, you know, they were talking about how much they hated One Strange Paradise. And, and, you know, I get that a lot. I write books that people that are very easy to hate Um, (laughs) and legitimately so. I'm not I'm not sort of. But this person said something like, you know, uh, just another book by by an Arab author designed to make white people feel bad. And I thought, okay, first of all, this book is designed to make everybody feel bad. Um, That's what I do. I bum people out. That's my thing. But second, this notion that there is an external obligation becomes more and more ridiculous to me the more I write and the older I get. What is hopeful is the writing. The, the, the act of, of writing the thing is the only obligation. It's, it's enclosed within itself. If this book comes out and doesn't change a single human being's mind, it doesn't, doesn't matter to me anymore. I think the sort of person who most needs to read this kind of book is absolutely not going to read it in the first place. And so there's an, there's an initial sort of catch-22 to begin with. And I think there's an additional sort of constraint that is the first four people who read this manuscript had four entirely different interpretations of what was going on in this book. So even if I was to sort of carry an obligation to do something in terms of what this book is going to cause people to do or how it's going to cause them to change, it's already being disproven by by the number of different interpretations of the book that exist. So for me, as much as I hope that this expands 
the reader's conception of who gets to be human and who gets to be treated with the basic decency that we should aspire to treat other humans. I don't consider that an obligation for the book to change anyone in any way. I think the act of writing is by far the most hopeful thing about any book. You've put it out into the world. You've assumed someone's going to read it. You've given years to your life to the creation of this thing. And, and that for me is enough. Yeah, I was thinking more too because you t- I listened to other interviews that you've done and you talked about that news cycle that people care about a tragedy for about a 24-hour period and then they just are on to the next thing. And that's why, you know, you read this book and you just, I guess you just, I'm hopeful that people will read it and say, wow, you know, we, it needs to be more than a 24 hour news cycle that we care. But I think you're also right that the people who need to read it don't, won't read it. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I agree with you completely. And I think that's one of the things about something that's inherent in the work, like novels do this, right? Like novels force you to dwell. Um, You, you sort of, you plant yourself in the world of the story and by definition, it's almost the exact opposite of a tweet. You know, you, you sort of, you have to be there for a while and that's a thing the book does uh, and the act of reading. So it is, it is an incredibly sort of lazy cop out on my part, right. To say that all of this stuff is inherent in the work because then it removes all of these obligations from me. But I, I quite enjoy that about novels, about, about the act of, having to sit there with with the work for an extended period of time. I think it does something that a lot of other art forms and a lot of other cultural forms in general just can't do. Now, in a Twitter post last uh, from last year, you said that you used to write comedy. And so I wanted to ask, is that true? Because that kind of surprised me. And nobody seemed to take that as a joke. So I wasn't sure if it was true or not. And can you tell us then about how you made your transition from journalism and possibly writing comedy to writing fiction? Yeah, yeah. People who are familiar with my uh, brick wall of a personality will, will find <laughs> that to be uh, incredibly <laughs> unlikely. But there's lots of us out there because we're so sort of socially incompetent that we <laughs> managed to design a second life for ourselves in comedy writing. Yeah, I used to do it in college. It was juvenile and and pretty horrible writing, um, but I enjoyed it so much. Yeah, so fiction was always my first home since I wrote my first story at five or six or something like that. When I got to Canada, one of the things about growing up in a particular sort of class and a particular sort of culture in, in the Middle East is that the idea of being a writer or a painter or a musician, the idea of making that making a living off of that is is sort of not considered serious. You know, you do that in your spare time. What you really do is become an engineer or a lawyer or a doctor. And I had that mindset by the time I showed up in Canada. So my degree is actually in computer science. I, I can't program my way out of a paper bag. I never <laughs> went to class. I, I was horrible at it. And in fact, the only reason I got any kind of education at all at, at Queens, where Queens University, where I went to school, is because one day I was walking around campus and I saw a copy of the student newspaper, the Queen's Journal, and they were um, advertising. They had an opening for an assistant news editor. And I applied thinking, well, these people will let me write. It's the only thing I'm any good at. And basically spent the next four years of my life just at the student newspaper, never went to class, never did any of that, and had enough of a portfolio by the end of my time at Queen's that I managed to, to nab an internship at the Globe and Mail, the, the big the big daily up in Canada and stayed on there 
and spent 10 years of my life as a journalist at the Globe, which was very fortunate for me, A, because I was never, ever getting a job in computer science, like that was never going to happen, and B, because it was the education I never got at Queen's. Um, I got a writing education because the back desk editors would tear my copy apart every day, and I got to learn why they were doing that, and B, because... um, I got to see the world. I got to go to Afghanistan and Guantanamo Bay. I got to go back to the Middle East to cover the Arab Spring. I got an education in, in the first draft of history, which has influenced, obviously, all of my fiction since. So fiction was always home, uh, but I took a long detour in part because I never really thought that I could make a living as a fiction writer. And um, I'm fortunate to have done so. I think that it you know, I don't know if my writing is any good or not, but it is slightly different because I've gotten a very unique education. So at a line level, it's a little different. At a thematic level, it's a little different. Uh, and all of that was because of the years I spent in journalism. So as happy as I am to have left that world after a while, I'm very grateful for that decade. I think it, um, I don't think I'd write these books otherwise. Well, I just want to say, uh, I, and I'm going to speak for Tara here, I think, too, but we think your work is absolutely brilliant. We've read both uh, both of the books, and we really look forward to whatever's coming next. And do you have anything on the horizon for us to look forward to? Um, I have a page and a half of a sprawling mess <laughs> that, will, that will not crash and burn for another couple of years. I have a piece of comedy writing coming out uh, in this thing called Small Odysseys, which is an anthology of short stories. There's a group called Selected Shorts uh, in New York. Every year they commission short stories and then they have actors read them out to a theater audience. And uh, this year they've decided to publish an anthology. And I have very unwisely written a comedy for that. Um, Excellent. (laughs) So that's coming out in March uh, and then a couple of short stories. But otherwise, I'm just going into the writing cave and trying to wrestle with what I hope will be the next novel. Well, first of all, we want to say good luck uh, during the Canada Reads competition. We cannot wait. I, I kind of had, we had done a little bit of a prediction of what we thought would happen. And I actually said that I thought it would go out first, I think, or no, Washington Black would go out first. And then I thought you would go out next only because they're going to take out the two top books. I think they're going to try competitively to get them out. But I hope that you win because I think of the five books, I just think it's an absolute brilliant masterpiece. I loved it. I hope that you win. Tara, do you want to add anything besides my gushing here? (laughs) Oh, I I will add to the gushing as well. My apologies. But um, I just want to put out there that I've chosen it to win, Omar. So, you know, I've, I've, it's, it's my, my, now I choose very differently from Rebecca chooses rationally. I went with my heart. So I, I chose your book as the winner. And after reading it, Rebecca texted me and she's like, you're right. It should win. I'm like, I know. I know it should. <laughs> exactly. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Like, with American War, I thought I was definitely going to lose. And then on the last day, it was two of us left. And I thought, well, now I'm definitely going to win. And then I lost. So I've gotten this thing wrong every single time. We'll see. We'll see what happens. Well, we just want to thank you so much for agreeing to chat with us today. And then we hope that when the next book comes out, you'll come back and, and talk with us again. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Thank you. Thank you.